Welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. So good to have you join us as we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famed sermon recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where we find ourselves midway through this chapter. For the last few weeks, we've been seeing Jesus upend the things that the folks believed about the Bible. He kept saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And tonight we're going to see his sixth and final time. He says, listen, you've thought this, but let me tell you what it really means. In other words, Jesus is showing us how to rightly interpret the Bible. And tonight we're going to be in verses 43 through 48 of Matthew 5. So turn there with me and, and why don't I read it and then pray and ask for God to help us as we unpack it in these next few brief moments. Beginning in verse 43, Matthew writes, quoting Jesus, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I do ask now that you would come and that you would speak your word to your people and that you would use me in spite of me as a means to that end. I ask this now in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Ours is a world where loving your enemies, I mean, who's ever heard of it? Ours is a world where hating your enemies is normal. I mean, it's glorified. Just open the history book and page after page is one story after the other of conflict. In fact, we tend to remember our history in light of the various wars we've been involved in. I mean, history is just nothing more than it seems a, a record of retaliation. Or open up the newspaper, turn on the TV and see the latest political news. It's nothing more than one dramatic story after the other, about some sort of political battle, some sort of upheaval, some sort of, my word, there's just something else going on where one politician's retaliating against the other. My word, you just watch politics and it's nothing more than one series of hating your enemies. You even look at sports, my word, something we enjoy, something as innocuous as athletics. You can't even go to a t-ball game anymore without some parent losing their mind. It's no longer become something that's just good and wholesome and builds character. It's become some sort of blood sport where conflict is inevitable and you end up hating the opposing team. Sadly, even within the church, you see this so often in something like a Christian marriage where, my word, you, you make these vows before God that you will love, cherish, and sacrificially serve one another as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and then... Just a matter of days, weeks, months, and often years down the road, your functional wedding vow becomes an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. 
a retaliatory mentality where you're getting back at each other in all these small, passive-aggressive ways. The point is simply this. Our culture, indeed our nature, is drenched with a mentality that's bent on hating your enemies. And it doesn't take a Christian to see this. You don't have to be a believer to see there's a problem. Unbelievers see that there is a gross lack of love in our culture. And so you are seeing a secular response. Just in our cultural context, beginning as early as the 60s, but surely before, you have seen this countercultural movement to reinject love into what otherwise appears to be a loveless society. Captured well by the Beatles' famed song, All You Need Is Love. You've seen this movement towards a desire to have love win or conquer all things. Uh, you've seen it particularly in this move towards continued legislation that will enable certain segments of our society to enjoy rights that this culture believes are loving and owed them. Now, we're not going to get derailed here, but suffice it to say, when our culture uses that word love, it is not the word love the Bible uses. Not in the same sense at all. You see, what the culture is doing is they're basically singing the same song that the Pharisees were singing here in Matthew 5, but just in a different key. You see, what they're doing is they're saying, love is doing something that I like and me doing something for you that you like. But if you disagree with me, but if you don't tolerate me, but if you deviate from me in any way, I am no longer required or obligated to demonstrate this sort of sacrificial love towards you. Love is a reciprocal thing. It's conditional. It's discriminant. And that's why Jesus' words in Matthew 5 are so revolutionary. They're, they're like a bomb dropped. You just, you hear these words and it should stun us. I wonder if it did you as we were reading it just a moment ago. When you see these words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that ought not sound confident and triumphant. When you hear Jesus' injunction to love your enemies, that should make your knees buckle. It should make you take a step back and think, dear mercy, how is this possible? Lord, I know my own heart. How could I possibly mirror this ethic you present in the Sermon on the Mount? You see, what Jesus is doing is he is recasting what it means to love. Jesus is presenting to us a love that doesn't make sense. It's one that defies the wisdom of the world. This love is genuinely impossible for natural man. We could call this type of love a perfect love. Drawing from that word perfect, we see in the last verse, verse 48. And what I want you to see today as we look at these few verses is that this perfect love that Jesus presents to us, that he submits to us, that he calls us to manifest, this perfect love is impossible on your own. You cannot do what Jesus has called us to do in Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 48 apart from Christ. Indeed, what we're going to see is this type of love is indicative of a heart transformed by Christ. 
It is the fruit of a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And one of the chief evidences of an old life gone and a new life come is a life that loves with this perfect love that Jesus calls us to in verses 43 through 48. And so what I'd like to do tonight is I want you to see two things. I want to show you two reasons why we desperately need Christ and His gospel to love the way we're called to love in this text. In other words, this perfect love that Jesus calls us to is impossible apart from Christ. We need Christ, number one, if you're taking notes, mark this down. We need Christ to see as He sees. See, what I want you to see first off is that Christ views reality differently than you and I. By analogy, have you ever looked at one of those photos? It's kind of an optical illusion where when you're looking at it, it, it might look like a bear or it might look like a tree or, you know, maybe it's a chicken and then you kind of look at it from a different angle and you notice it's a, a lady carrying an umbrella. I, I don't know what you call those images, but they're those images where depending on your perspective, you're going to see it totally differently. That's a poor analogy, but it does kind of illustrate for us the truth that you and I look at reality and Jesus looks at the same reality and he sees it differently. He sees two things in particular in this text differently and he's calling us to see them the way he sees them. And if we don't see the way he sees, we are never going to love as he loves. Now, this is a good analogy for us because the Bible is replete with imagery of us being spiritually blind. The Bible says that outside of Christ, we do not see Christ for who He is. We do not savor Him. We are blind to spiritual realities. But when Christ saves us, just as He did the Apostle Paul, the, the scales fall from our eyes. We behold Christ for who He really is and we are saved. And so the analogy we're seeing in this text is that Christ is calling us to Open our eyes by the power of the Spirit and see reality the way He sees reality. And in particular, two things like I mentioned. First off, we see this at the very beginning where He starts recasting the Bible. He wants us to see the Bible or the Word. He wants us to see the Word the way He sees the Word. Because notice, if you will, in verse 43, He says, You have heard that it was said. In other words, he's saying, you've been taught, you've read the Bible, you've interpreted and understand the Bible to say, and then here's what he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you, it's not readily apparent what's so messed up about this verse, but what Jesus has done is he has said, you've heard it said that, in particular, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you've heard it said that this text tells you to love your enemy and, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus is saying, that's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, you go read it, it says, love your neighbor as yourself, full stop. It says nothing about hating your enemy. And Jesus says, let me tell you what it really means. Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies. And then he puts a finer point on it. Pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus is doing in this text is he is helping us see how to rightly interpret the Bible. Jesus is helping us see that we've got to learn to read the Bible the way he reads the Bible. Now, 
The reason why this is so critical is because all of us naturally are inclined to read into the Bible what we want. And this is what the Jews had done. They heard this command in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbors as yourself. And what they did is instead of exegeting, which is a bigger word that means taking out exactly what it means, they eisegeted, which is another way of saying they read into it something that wasn't there. They, they said, okay, if you're supposed to love your neighbor, then my neighbor must be those that are right around me. So by implication, I don't have to love those who aren't my neighbor. In fact, it makes sense for me to hate those who are my enemies, those tribes out there. So I'm going to love my circle and I'm going to hate everybody else. And Jesus is saying, you've missed it. That was not the point of that command. When I called you to love your neighbor as yourself, I was calling you to see mankind as your neighbor, to love others as you love yourself. Now, we see this most memorably illustrated in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus delivers his famed parable of the Good Samaritan. If you can recall that parable, Jesus, addressing a lawyer, uh, tells them, hey, let me tell you how uh, to know who your neighbor is. And he gives a little story because the lawyer's like, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who exactly is my neighbor? Is it just fellow Jews or am I supposed to consider everybody my neighbor? So Jesus tells this little story about a, a Jew who gets beaten and he's laying on the side of the road nearly dead and there's all these fellow Jews that are walking down the road and none of them stop to help him except one individual who was not a Jew. He was a Samaritan. And now a Samaritan was a hated individual. Samaritans were the folks that lived just north of Jerusalem in a region called Samaria. And they were the leftover folks after the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon. Those who were left over in the land, they were uh, considered the Samaritans. They intermarried with all the, uh, the Babylonian conquerors and they were considered a despised people. In fact, the Jews didn't even walk through Samaria. They'd walk around it to avoid that land. We see this also memorably illustrated when Jesus goes straight through the land of Samaria and he stops at the well and speaks to the Samaritan woman. The point is simply this. When Jesus uses this illustration and the Samaritan stops and helps the Jew, it should stun everybody who reads it. It's, it's a little lost on us, but if you were there, you would have thought, oh my word, the Samaritan, the arch enemy, he's the one that helped the hurting Jew. And Jesus' point in that parable was simply this. You need to love your enemy. Your neighbor is your enemy. Your enemy is your neighbor. I have not called you to love those who are easy to love. I have not called you to love those that are immediately around you. I have called you to consider the world your neighbor. I have called you to love those who are unlovable. Love your enemy. And Jesus is telling these people, you've been looking at the Bible all wrong. You've, you've missed it. I want you to see something. I want you to see the Bible the way I see it. That's the first thing. And he also says, I want you to see your enemies the way I see your enemies. I want you to see these other people the way I see them. I want you to see them the way the Samaritan in the parable saw them. I want you to see these people differently. You, you see them all wrong. I want you to love folks the way I love them. Now, how did Jesus love others? How did Jesus love his enemies? 
And of course, this gets down to the great gospel truths of Christianity, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You and I were carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us even while we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ, and by grace we've been saved. Jesus did for us that which we could not do for ourselves, not because we were lovable, He did it in spite of that. We were His enemies. We were at enmity with Him. And He came and did this for us and calls us in turn to do likewise. Which is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is where we see Jesus so memorably demonstrate this uh, upon uh, crucifixion. When he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can go find that in Luke 23, 34. We also see this mirrored by the great, one of the first deacons, Stephen, who upon being martyred, stoned to death, which by the way, the Apostle Paul was standing nearby watching. Stephen cries out in Acts 7, 59, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, how is this possible? It's one thing to see Jesus say this, but how could a man like Stephen cry that out? How could the Apostle Paul with integrity say, bless those who persecute you? How is this possible? I mean, can you really love your enemies? This is not possible with natural motivation. You may feel motivated for a hot second, and then the minute somebody pricks your pride, you're going to let it go. You're just going to stop. It's so hard to love your enemy. It's probably not going to feel worth it to you. There's no upshot. Why are you going to do it? The only way this is possible, the only possible chance you can fulfill the call of Christ to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is if you are a follower of Christ and you see the extent to which He has forgiven and extended grace to you. In other words, The gospel is the only thing that's going to make this possible. Now, practically speaking, how do you do it? I mean, how do you actually start taking steps to love your enemies? Maybe today you're hearing this and thinking, Kyler, there's this individual in my life. We are at enmity. There's been bitterness building up for years, resentment. It's hard. I don't know that this will ever be reconciled. If there's an individual that comes to your mind right now that you cannot love, I mean, it is tough for you to love. May I submit to you as Christ exemplified and called us to. Begin today. The first step you can start taking is to pray for that individual, to pray for those who persecute you. Have you ever done that before? I have found in my life that those whom I am struggling with the most, if I make that individual a matter of prayer, It's like the Lord chisels my heart. It's really hard to hate someone you pray for. As you continue in your prayer for them, you're going to notice the Lord shift your heart. You're going to start extending grace towards them because as you pray, you will reflect on the extent to which God has been gracious to you. So may I commend to you, learn, brothers and sisters, learn to see as Christ sees. See His Word the way He sees it. 
It's Christ-centered, wonderful way to reimagine this Bible. This is not just a list of commands. This is basically a call to see Christ as your all in all. Learn to see this book the way he sees it. And learn to see your enemies the way he sees them. They are recipients of the grace of God. You have been given much grace. You can in turn extend much grace to others and thereby love your enemies. And the first step towards that end is to begin praying for those who persecute you. That's the first thing I want you to see. But there's one final thing I want you to see in this text tonight. Not only ought we learn that we need Christ to see as he sees. Secondly, we also need Christ to love as he loves, which we see this in verses 45 and following, where he says in the latter half of verse 45, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What we see here is a type of indiscriminate grace God extends to all mankind. We call this, theologians call this, common grace. Now here's what we mean by common grace. When God has the sunrise every morning, that sunlight that touches a believer's skin touches an unbeliever's skin. When rain falls from heaven and waters the ground, it hits the heads of those who love Christ and those who hate Christ. There is a grace that God gives all mankind captured in Psalm 145 verse 9 that says, The Lord is good to all and He has mercy over all that He has made. This is the loving, common grace, kindness of God where He extends it to all mankind. And He presents it in this text as a picture, as an analogy. He says, in the same way that I am good to all mankind, I am calling you to be good to all. In the same way that I extend a common love to all people, I am calling you to love others. I am calling you to love indiscriminately as I love. I want you to love in a way that you are not a respecter of persons. So let's just take it a little closer to home. That means in a very real sense, we are called to demonstrate a Christ-like love to believers and unbelievers, to Republicans and Democrats. You're called to love heterosexuals and homosexuals. You're called to love all mankind. Now precisely what that type of love is, we're going to look at in just a moment. But he says, you must demonstrate the love of Christ to all people, which he also repeats in multiple places where he says, Christians will be known by the way they love. In fact, this type of love proves you are a follower of Christ. Jesus says, my grace has been indiscriminate towards you, and I am calling you to in turn indiscriminately love and have grace towards other people. First off, we need to love as he loves, and in particular, love indiscriminately. But what exactly does that mean? How do you love indiscriminately? Well, I think the chief way you love indiscriminately is, secondly, we need to learn to love unconditionally as He loves, which we see illustrated in verses 46 and 47, where He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And then He says in verse 47, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do that? His point is, if you just love people who are like you, people who are easy to love, if you just love those where it doesn't take much work, there is nothing unique about that. Unbelievers do that. Christ is not necessary to love people that are easy to love. 
his point is simply, you got to learn to stop loving people conditionally as believers. Conditional love is natural. The world's filled with it. All of us are naturally inclined to love those who love us back. What's going to mark you, what's going to make you different, what's going to smell different to a lost world, what's going to stand out as a bright light in a dark world are those individuals who love those who hate them, who show a type of love that doesn't make any sense. That's the type of love that's arresting. One great illustration of this arresting love is the love demonstrated by famed missionary Elizabeth Elliot, who was married to Jim Elliot, one of the most famous martyrs of the 20th century. Jim and Elizabeth were missionaries to an Ecuadorian tribe of people named the Alca Indians. And while ministering there, Jim, in 1956, was murdered, martyred, as it were, by these Indians while sharing the gospel of Christ. Now, if your spouse was murdered by a tribe of people, even on your best day, you're going to be inclined not to go back to that tribe. On your best day, you're going to say, Lord, help me to forgive them, but I have no interest in doing much more for them. The grief would be overwhelming. But Elizabeth, overcome with the goodness of the gospel of Jesus, arrested by the call to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Elizabeth, after grieving the loss of her husband, returned to that very tribe of people who killed her man. And there she ministered for multiple years and saw many come to Christ. A type of forgiveness that is not natural to mankind indeed is impossible apart from the gospel of Jesus coming and doing in her a work that she would never cultivate in and of herself. She's a walking embodiment of 2 Corinthians 5.17. She is new in Christ, a new creation. That old Elizabeth is gone, a new Elizabeth was manifestly there. And that's the type of love Christ calls us to. To love in such a way that a watching world would say, this doesn't make sense. And the only way we can do that is when we finally come to terms with the glorious reality that when we meant harm for God, God actively sought our good. There was a time when you were actively persecuting the Lord. You, were turned, you had turned your back from Him. You hated Him. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You rejected your maker. And it was while you were that sinner that Christ died for you and sought you and drew you and called you to himself. When we, when we sought his harm, he sought our good. When we were his enemies, he died for us. So when we see Christ, our great example, when we see Christ, our great redeemer, when we see Christ, our matchless savior, do these unspeakably glorious things, it wells up in us a desire to imitate. It wells up in us a desire to demonstrate to a world the Savior who has redeemed us. If you are in Christ, God is doing a work in your heart this moment. The Bible calls this a sanctifying process where He's changing you slowly but surely into the image of Jesus. And that process is going to make you slowly but surely start reflecting the character of Christ. One of the chief evidences of this Christ-like character is an indiscriminate, unconditional love. A love for those who are hard to love. It is for those 
enemies in our lives that no sane, natural man would ever say, they deserve your love. It's those very individuals that Christ has called us to love, which is why the full weight of verse 48 is so appropriate because he concludes with, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And brothers and sisters, who amongst us is? We're not. This is not a call to moral perfection. That would be counterintuitive. That would contradict the gospel. The type of love Christ calls us to, the perfection He calls us to, is to simply throw ourselves upon the weight of a perfect Savior and say, God Almighty, I need you to do in me what I cannot do in and of myself. So I think the great takeaway for us tonight is, brothers and sisters, search your heart and find those enemies in your life and begin tonight to pray. Take out a piece of paper, write their names down, and say, Lord, help me to make these individuals a matter of prayer and stick with it. Pray for those who persecute you and watch God do a work in your heart that you might begin to do that which feels utterly impossible this moment, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, now come and do this work in our hearts. It feels like it's a miracle, Lord. Indeed, that's what it is. It's got to be a work of the Spirit. So do that work, we pray, for the glory of your name and the good of our witness. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.